Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. The question many of us ask ourselves is why am I the way I am? Our lives are shaped by unconscious patterns, and we often deal with issues that are preventing us from living fully and richly. Resolving these challenges can be a lifelong quest and sometimes feel like we're throwing darts in the dark. My guest today is dedicated to illuminating and healing these aspects of our being. Katarina Wittich, better known as Kato, is a Rosen therapist and family constellations instructor. Kato was part of the panel of experts on the Netflix series Sex, Love and Goop, hosted by actress and entrepreneur Gwyneth Paltrow. The method Kato uses to examine and heal her clients' undesirable behavioral patterns, family constellations, is based on the belief that our dysfunctional patterns are not our own. Instead, they are deeply rooted family patterns that once served a purpose, often survival-related, but now are detrimental and hinder us from living our lives to the fullest potential. Kato facilitates restoring flow into her clients' lives by bringing forth what was previously repressed so that these unconscious patterns can be acknowledged and then released and no longer need to be repeated. summer and I have passionately dedicated the last 12 years of my life to creating the ultimate human experience mentally, physically and spiritually based on the most powerful ancient teachings and cutting edge modern discoveries and technologies. The Superhumanized Podcast is a show committed to sharing what I have learned from the world's leading experts in order to help you achieve your full potential and create your best life ever. Kato, it is such a pleasure to have you here with me today. I was so looking forward to this conversation. Thank you for making time for the Superhumanized podcast today. I'm delighted. And Kato, what you're doing today is uh, truly extraordinary. And before we talk about that, I would love to give the audience a little bit of background about you because your life was very different years ago. You were an author for series such as Criminal Minds or Tales from the Dark Side. So can you tell us a little bit about your life, let's call it before? And yeah, I'm fascinated by that. Yes. I mean, it's before, after, during, ongoing. <laughs> I tend to wear a lot of hats. Yeah. Um, and actually, in a way, none of them are separate. They're the film industry, and in particular, when you're writing, what you're doing is you're delving deep into the human psyche. If you're doing a good job, you're delving deep into the human psyche and you're listening an enormous amount to what is it that makes us human? What is it that makes us flourish? What are our pains and our joys? And how do you communicate those with, with an audience in ways that will allow them to feel things that will help them to live richer lives? Mm -hmm. um, and so for me, I started out right from the beginning wanting to be a writer. I think in the beginning, I thought I'd be Shakespeare or something, but the mode of my youth was film. And so I moved into film, not into theater and just spent a lot of years doing the things that everybody does in the film industry, which is that you, you do multiple things. And I was a first assistant director at the same time as being a writer and just 
doing all the usual putting together projects, which then fall apart and various moving forwards and moving backwards. And eventually at a certain point, I actually started to get, I had a very dramatic thing, actually. I was working as an assistant director on a shoot for a commercial, big commercial. And we had uh, stuntmen hanging off of the Seattle Space Needle and helicopters incoming. And I'm the one on the walkie talkie telling everybody what's safe, what can happen, what can't happen. And I had this moment where my brain just stepped out and, and I couldn't think for a moment. And then it came back and I managed, but Afterwards, I realized it had been building for a year that things were coming and going in my ability to think. And I realized I had a problem I had to deal with. And I went out and I started looking at what was wrong with me, which turned out to be very massive mercury toxicity, uh-huh. which can often be neurotoxic and can really mess with your ability to think. And I had to take a, a, a break from working actively in the industry and really was fairly sick and not functioning really well for a while. The gift that illness always gives us is that it makes you really pay attention to your what track you're on and what you might be doing in your life and where you want to be and how you became who you are. And that process actually led to my discovering first Rosen method, which is my first true love of work, which is the foundation for the way that I do family constellations, which is the work that you saw on Sex, Love, and Goop. And through this period of time of trying to heal myself, which I think is often how we learn the most important things about life in general, is when something goes wrong for us and we have to pay attention. I started to learn about much more about what makes us human and what what our needs are and uh, and how in particular for me i had a childhood with a great deal of trauma and also my father's german and grew up during world war ii in germany in darmstadt which as was firebombed and i'm sure because every german kind of knows the dreadful things that did happen we don't often hear about what happened to the german cities that much but as a child he lived through firebombing and when you have a parent who has grown up under those stresses they pass down epigenetically, genetically, through family culture, their anxiety and oh, their God. sense that, right? Yes. Their sense that the world is not safe. And when they do that, you inherit on, on all these levels a sense that you need to contract in the usually in the face of things that are dangerous and that the world is dangerous. And when we contract, we usually are contracting on so many levels, on the emotional, but also on the physical, we don't detox very well. (laughs) And so this, I bit by bit started to learn, ah, my issues are not just the issues of the physical, which I certainly have genetic issues that have to do with not detoxing well, and therefore not getting the mercury out of my system, but also emotionally becoming aware that we're not ever just healthy physically without having some emotional healthiness. And we're never unhealthy physically without having some connection to emotional unwellness, which is what I thought was interesting. What's marvelous about your podcast is all the different perspectives you give your listeners in terms of ways of approaching physical health, but also you talk to people about emotional health as being an in tandem thing, which I very much appreciate. Thank you, Kato. I appreciate your kindness. And what you just said just uh, resonated so deeply. And of course, I already have 
in the last few years made some of these connections uh, for some reason, your words really just while you were telling, <clears throat> sharing of your family history really choked me up. My father also, as a little boy, lived through the Second World War. He was born in 1935. He was a little bit of an older father. I'm 44 now. So, you know, the years from 1935 to 1945, 10-year uh, little boy, 10-year-old little boy uh, when the war ended. And then, of course, the hunger years. And this, I've always had this innate feeling that I've worked on, that fear that I didn't know where it came from, anxiety all my life. The world is not a safe place. At the same time, coupled with a deep trust in the good of humanity. So I was always working to how to connect that to, because it seemed so strange. Like one thing seems to be innate, the other also, but it seems like it's not mine. And I've realized that. But so I, yeah, that really resonates deeply with me. And it's a lot, it's so much of the healing work I feel we have to do is not only related to our own life experiences, but you've mentioned it, epigenetics. There's been experiences, experiments with mice, for example, the poor creatures being exposed to electroshocks and at the same time to a peppermint scent. And subsequently, only the peppermint scent would make the mice show signs of distress and not even the first generation of mice, but their offspring and even their grandchildren without ever having been exposed to electroshocks, just the scent of peppermint, which would, you know, put them in a mode of panic and anxiety. And so what you're doing is I'd like to hear it in your own words, of course, with regards to family constellations, what is it? And what is uh, also, if you can give us a little bit of the history of it. And I want to take one step further, those wonderful studies, which I, I, I think they were done with cherry blossoms, but maybe with peppermint or something mm -hmm. like that. But on mice is that what they found is that these, that the fear or aversion to the, to, to that smell got, was passed down, but also could be changed because epigenetics isn't necessarily that it's, it isn't that it's in your genes. They don't yet know exactly how it works. It might be RNA. It might be these little snippets of proteins. I don't understand the full science behind it there, but they're learning. But what they found crucial to my work and to all of our work is that whatever is passed down can also usually be changed. So in the mice, what they did is they had them exposed to the smell that their ancestors had associated with the electroshocks, but they didn't shock them. And over time, the brain of the mouse rewired to say, oh, it's not dangerous anymore. So these are the things that in, in, in my practices, both Rosen and Family Constellations, are really cornerstone is that in order to really find our ground to recognize, for instance, the you, you take your experience that you've inherited from parents who had difficult experiences in their childhood, a sense of unsafety. And that sense of unsafety is probably unconscious a lot of the time, but it affects everything in your life most likely because most likely what you do is most likely most of us, if you notice, you, and you can do it right now and your listeners can do it on their podcast is just to take a moment and feel in your body how you breathe. And don't try to change it, just notice how you're breathing. If we came into the world with a deep sense of safety, 
when we breathe, our breath is breathing us. It's not being done by us. It's automatically doing itself without our getting in the way. And that's because the diaphragm, which is the, the muscle of inspiration, and uh, Marian Rosen, my first teacher, calls it the muscle of grace. Mm. It moves itself how it needs to move until we get worried or scared, or we come into the world already carrying the fear of previous generations, in which case our tendency is to limit our breath in different ways. So some of us don't breathe out all the way. Some of us breathe very small and very shallow. Many of us breathe just using our chests. Most of us don't breathe into our side sides of our lungs or our back. A baby who had an easy in the womb experience comes out fully breathing from head to toe, and you can see it when you look at them. So if you feel yourself, do you notice right now when you just feel into yourself, you, of course, I think you have a cold, so you might not feel it so clearly, but can you feel how you breathe differently? Yes, I felt a difference from when you started talking about breath, where I was taking breaths that were not so deep, and I was not doing anything to uh, influence my breath, but right now breathing, it just felt much more easy breathing into my belly, just the uh, putting the focus on the breath and allowing it to be actually allowed it to relax. And I think it also allowed my nervous system to realize, okay, you are not, there's nothing threatening here. You are safe. And uh, to just, and, and this is something I think that I read also you, you mentioned is a basic principle of family constellation work or Rosen is to learn to be with what is, right? Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. And to be with what is, when we talked about those mice that get reconditioned by getting the smell, but not the shock, eventually they get reconditioned to feel that what is not dangerous. Mm -hmm. Every time we allow ourselves our difficult feelings, whatever they are, in, in, in what just happened between you and me, which was a co-regulation, because I am sitting here with my breath moving, my sense of safety communicating to you even across who knows how the ways we do it through my voice, through the whatever this is that connects us all that shows up in family constellations. As every time you have that experience that it's okay to feel like in this case, the tightness in your breath, which is an anxiety and not avoid it, but you get re-regulated by just allowing it, it becomes safer and less connected in your nervous system to breathing. For instance, the simple fact of breathing becomes not something you have to control. And then the more you don't have to control it, the more you feel safe. And it's an amazing spiral that happens. It really is. I noticed it in my muscles relaxing. My face started to smile. You'll probably also hear it in my voice right now. Absolutely. Yes. And so this is, I'm going to just backtrack a tiny moment because I'm going to explain family constellations, but first I just want to explain Rosen method. Please, because it's underneath everything I do. And so Rosen, Rosen Method actually was created by a German woman, Marian Rosen, who was astonishing and who grew up in Germany in, in the 30s, Jewish, and eventually had to flee. But she grew up during the time when breath and body work and psychotherapy were all evolving. And there wasn't as much separation. We didn't do so much of the mind and body separation. We really still knew that everything was all one piece 
with you can come at it from different angles, but you need to look at the whole picture or you only get part of it. And then she eventually developed this work, which is at core a work that it's a somatic, a form of a somatic therapy that involves touch and talk. And because touch is our very first sensory impression, it's the first place we learn safety or lack of safety in our bodies. It's very profound to be touched by someone who is grounded in themselves and unafraid of you feeling whatever feeling will come up for you. Because most of us didn't have that in our childhood. Most of our parents are have reasons they need us to put parts of ourselves away. Mm. So when you go to a Rosen Method um, practitioner and they are with you, holding you and listening to you and looking for essentially the places in our body where we're contracted, because we all know wherever we're contracted, we've had to put away something. That's what our muscular contractions do. And so when the diaphragm contracts, the reason you don't breathe fully is something was too scary to feel either your own or from your ancestors, but, or direct experiences you had. And like the mice, you had a, you have a unconscious reaction of contracting in the face of anything dangerous and a perception that much more is dangerous than it really is. So in Rosen, bit by bit, what happens when we work with the the body-mind, with hands, and approaching the places where you had to put away yourself, your feelings, where you thought feelings were dangerous, what happens is that touch and that presence says it's okay to feel yourself. And every time you feel whatever you've been trying to avoid, whether it's painful, whether even sometimes joy, sometimes we try to avoid feeling love. If you're a little kid and your mom is so overwhelmed by her life that she can't bear to be needed or wanted or loved, you're going to learn to put love away. Sometimes that's what we've put away. When someone comes and is present to the body, and the emotions that are inside and under the contractions and the feelings come up, your nervous system starts to experience like the mice that you won't be killed by this feeling that previously felt overwhelming and impossible. And as that happens, your nervous system rewires itself. So I have many years as a Rosen practitioner underlying before I came to family constellations. And I'm really grateful for it because it the only way you're effective as a Rosen practitioner is to be with the person where they are, holding them safely. I like to call it midwifing because really what you're doing is you're holding the sense of safety for whoever we really are to come out, whatever it is that needs to come up and be felt so that we you can know who you are and you can function in the world fully from yourself, not from a place of contracted hiding from yourself. To do that, as a Rosen practitioner, I have to be willing to be totally lost. Because if I think I know what's coming up in you and project my thoughts and my stories, they're always going to be coming through my confirmation bias, which I'm sure you're how much we cannot perceive anything directly except for through our own brains. And our brains are conditioned by everything that's ever happened to us. So we look for what we already know, and we tend to ignore what we don't already know. So if I sit with somebody and allow the space and the safety for me to not know what's coming up for them, because I would only be projecting, eventually what comes up is what needs to come up for them to feel it so that this rewiring process can happen. And I would love to interject a question, Kato. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 
This is so fascinating. You said you have to be in a place where it's also okay for you to be lost. So for a lot of us, so hearing that many of us move through our lives, we cling to this idea of control because of course, in a sense, this idea of us whirling through this vast universe, not really knowing where we came from, where we're going, all this, that's why we (laughs) seek control in some way or the other, whether it's the way we devise our lives or beliefs or work out, whatever gives us a sense of control. So how do you actually find, did you find, or what gives you the comfort of being okay with being lost? (laughs) So this is why I'm so grateful. I have this long practice of Rosen, because if your body is responding to a sense of danger, you will not be comfortable with being lost. You will try to control because you feel endangered. So what changes one's comfort level with being lost is actually the experiential feeling, not a thinking, but a feeling that it's okay to feel whatever comes through you to not be in control of both your own emotions and what's around you. Because of course, none of us are in control of what's around us. We can affect it, but we're not in control. So we actually make ourselves more anxious the more we try to control. I'm sure. And as a German, raised German, half German, just like you, you that we have culturally a whole lot of oh, stuff yeah. around control. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and it didn't work well for our parents, bless them. No, <laughs> and bless them. And it doesn't work well for us. And so the more we can let go of our belief systems and actually, you know, understand that all of our belief systems are just an attempt to feel safe. We don't really know anything about anything because we have this lovely confirmation bias thing that makes it possible to function as humans. I know one of the things I've briefly skimmed some of your podcasts, and I love that you pay attention to evolution because I think one of the most important things as humans that we can do to take our judgment out about things is to look at, at the to really embrace the fact that nearly everything that we do has been wired into us by hundreds of thousands of years of evolution that we had nothing to do with, during which our ancestors evolved for survival purposes, certain neurological wiring that does not fit the world we're in now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because our world has nothing to do with the world of hunter-gatherers who, by the way, I'm going to actually say, wait, I'm going to say something about this that goes into family constellations. In my perspective, one of the most important things that can help us non-judgmentally look at what part of why we feel so lost and endangered is because we actually develop nervous systems that were intended to function really well in very small groups. Probably they say maybe you had 30 person groups that were hunter gatherers that were moving and living through the world, living tightly and closely together in a situation, even when you look at the few remaining modern day hunter gatherers in general, every member of that group is important. There's not a hierarchy the way we do where you have rich men being the most important people in manipulating things. You need your elders, you need the babies, you need the mothers of the babies, you need the strong young men, you need every member of your band or you won't survive because they each have unique 
things they bring and you live so closely with them that you're so would have been so in tune with them that you would have known them inside out you would have resonated with them in ways that probably in our earliest ancestors didn't require language we hadn't yet developed our language centers in our brain eventually we developed it but it's really likely that we were all interconnected in ways that let us know things that we've now lost in this last whatever it is 8 to 13,000 years of the blink of an eye compared to how long our nervous systems were developing since right. we developed agriculture and we started living in larger and larger communities and then we were, became sedentary and we start accumulating property and we start becoming hierarchical and our nervous systems are going what <laughs> <laughs> that makes a lot of sense, Kato. And I had a few months ago, really interesting discussion with another wonderful guest on this podcast, Dr. Ryan Eisler, who... My hero. Yes. Yes. She's amazing. Yes. She's, I haven't listened to it yet. I'm dying to listen to it. I will. Oh, gosh. She's so wonderful. So, you, of course, you know that because you just brought it up. We It makes so much sense. So, going from small groups to large groups and then these hierarchies developing. So, instead of being connected and being an honored and valued part of the whole, all of a sudden you find yourself in a situation where, as she would call it, it's a domination type of model. I am better than you because of my, whether it's social status, gender, skin color, whatever it is. Whereas in the human past, we often operated from these partnership models where there were not these domination hierarchical aspects that seem to make it so effing difficult for us today, because of course, that is the kind of culture we live in today. And if you think about it, again, these are all theories. We only have theories. We never know anything for sure. But if you think about it, what has happened is we most likely had a direct connection to our to the joy that connection and giving and taking care of each other creates in humans mm. when you live in these small groups. Scientifically, we start now to be able to explain those things. You make oxytocin every time you touch. So if you live in a community where 10 of you are snuggled up every night together in a cave, <laughs> you're going to be making a lot of oxytocin. But if you live in your own little house, watching your internet and never seeing another other human <laughs> talking to them only on Zoom, you're not going to make a lot of oxytocin. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Bonding and joyful hormone. So what happens is you get confused and you start looking for joy in all the wrong places like money and mm -hmm. things, which doesn't work. But you develop these hierarchical societies where people are, it's just confusion. It's just that we have not had enough time to adapt to our ev evolutionary um, reality, our nervous systems have not adapted yet. And one of the things that I love that Rianne Eisler said in Chalice and the Blade was she talked about how evolution works and that we tend to think, and that people, you, before Marija Gimbutas, who's the archaeologist on which her work is based, before her, archaeologists used to say, oh, civilization evolves in a straight line up. We started out savages and now we go up and now we're in we have this hierarchical society with lots of men in control making things work and none of that female gooey chaotic stuff. And here we go. We've got it all under control and it's getting better and better. And then Gimbutas went out and discovered, no, actually we had plumbing and arts long before the male archaeologists saw that. 
so we don't evolve in a straight line up. And what Rianne Eisler was talking about in the, about even in a Petri dish, that evolution doesn't, you don't build into a, a, a multi-celled, more functional organism. You get chaos and stresses and things do all sorts of things. And then boom, all of a sudden eyes exist you know? and everybody's getting eyes, but, it, but you don't know how you got there really. It comes from pressure happening. So in a way, we're in the pressure cooker right now, right? It's been a, a blink of an eye since we developed these massive societies. We get bigger and bigger. We're in a pressure cooker and our nervous systems do not function in this pressure cooker. But maybe, hopefully, this pressure cooker is going to jump us a big step up to where we get that we're all interconnected in ways that we don't right now feel very much not just through the internet, but through whatever it is that lets us feel each other that would have been normal probably for our ancestors. And now we don't understand at all. Yes, I think it's not, it's, it's not a surprise. It's not a coincidence that a lot of people around the world are, if you want to use, it's been very overused, but it's still an accurate term, are waking up in a sense. It's not a coincidence that we have so many medicines, whether they're plant medicines or compounds out of the lab that open up our minds, seeing a huge resurgence. Even here in the US and in Europe, the legalization of studies into psychedelics, or we have ketamine that is legal in the entire U that is being used for PTSD, anxiety, for resolving past traumas. We have all these studies into MDMA and psilocybin. We have, of course, plant medicines that are legal. And for example, in Brazil, ayahuasca is legal, iboga is legal, and, and people are drawn to using these medicines to shed some of this hardening, shed some of this contraction and aid open up and soften up and reconnect quicker. So what I love about the work I do is that it can happen without needing any substance, <laughs> yeah. which I totally honor substances. But I also think in our addictive society, we very quickly get into taking plant medicine every weekend. Good point. Absolutely. <laughs> Which is not how the original use was. But what is extraordinary, and so this I'll explain what family constellations is. So first off, Rosen Method as my base has allowed me, first off, I work very much from the body. So this is my grounding. And I am very comfortable with being lost and not knowing. Again, a grounding from Rosen Method. And I've developed very strongly the skills of that kind of connecting, letting go of all those contractions and those sort of walls we build. Because every time you practice being with somebody in that way, you're shedding those. So eventually you actually become where you are walking around feeling people probably closer to the way that our ancestors did in feeling your interconnection. And, and this is all very, that's all my, my not so woo-woo. Rosen, we're probably working with energy, but we don't call it that. It, we don't need the ex, any explanations beyond the way that the human being is structured psychologically and physically and the ways we can access that. So my other work is extraordinarily woo-woo and I'm extraordinarily not woo-woo. <laughs> yes, because you've, you've actually been raised atheist, right? 
raised atheist, went to Yale. I'm very intellectual. I used to live so much only in my head. It's been a long journey to come. To <laughs> and you know, this is, this, there's something else interesting my talking about both of our heritage, our fathers and growing up during, you know, the Second World War. My father also considers himself an atheist. Actually, you were raised also, uh-huh. Yes, and I was not raised that way. My mother uh, was evangelical, or a pro Protestant, you call it, in, yes, in Germany. Yes, yes uh, we don't but, call it evangelical. We have a different form. And they are Protestant, but it's, yeah. Yes, but so it's interesting. I have always thought that there is a connection, this uh, believing there is no, no divine entity, intelligence, energy, uh, that it may very well be connected to just having a life experience as a child where everything is so dangerous and how can these things happen if there is a God? So that's always what uh, in my later years, I came to connect with my, my father's atheism. His childhood experience uh, certainly has something to do with that. It, it absolutely can. And I, I don't know, at this point, I'm careful about all labels because all labels that I know of limit things as if, again, they're control mm -hmm. mechanisms in a way. So I wouldn't call myself atheist. I wouldn't call myself agnostic now, but I would call myself a major skeptic about everything. And because I am comfortable being lost, I have no problem with that. I, when I was younger, I needed to know what was what. Now I actually understand brain science enough to know I'm fooling myself if I think I know what was what is what. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really only know what I directly experience. And even that, I know it only as an experience. And I can't say this is the truth or not the truth because I, everything is going to be perceived through my confirmation bias, through my lifelong experiences. Confirmation bias is as simple as if you grow up in the forest where there are lots of snakes, when you're walking along and you see something on the ground that could be long and thin, you're going to think there's danger, there's a snake. But if you grew up somewhere where there's no snakes at all, but there's lots of nice, strong sticks that can help you to walk, and you see something lying on the ground that's sort of long and thin, you don't think it's a snake. You think, oh, damn, the walking stick I needed yes. <laughs> to pick it up. We don't perceive well because we are so conditioned by what by our previous perceptions. So I know even now as I'm talking to you, whatever I tell you now, whatever I think now is just what I think now because of what my previous experiences are. And it may be totally different in a year or two. The best example of that is, is that I really was pretty firmly, it's not so much about atheist, even I was even not perceiving that we had an, any kind of interconnection that went outside of space or time. I just really believed this is our body, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. We are creatures made of meat. This is how we are animals. We are pattern-seeking animals who make up great stories and we're extraordinarily beautiful in our courage and our capacity to love and live in this strange thing of being born and dying, and which is truly our experience. We're born and dying, and anything else is just projection, but might be very real. <laughs> we just don't know. But I had no experience of anything else, so that was how I perceived things. I was really lucky 
at one point in my life, somebody, a friend of, of my sister's actually kept bugging me to go see this work called Family Constellations. And I kept rolling my eyes because it was so woo-woo. And I thought, I don't, this is silly. Mm-hmm. And she kept bugging me until I went. And what I saw when I went was that a room of total strangers who had come together with the desire of voyaging, trying to figure out uh, what is causing the problems for one or two individuals who were the lucky ones who'd been selected to have a constellation, could gather this group of people and could investigate what the family patterns were that had led to the problem in the person's life by standing in a room, emptying themselves, which just means standing there and not trying to think too much. It's nothing very fancy. And waiting to see what might come through them that is not themselves if they have been put in the role of being the mother or the father or the great-great-grandmother of this person. And so what you end up seeing looks a little like a psychodrama in the sense that there are plenty of practices where you take people and you say, okay, you're the child, you're the mother, you're the father, you act this out. This is no acting. You stand and you wait. And what happens is feelings come through you that are completely not your own. So let's say you'll put in a person. So let's say somebody has a problem with relationships that they always end quickly and they can't trust. So then we get curious. We know that probably in your family of origin, there were conscious patterns in the family that lead to distrust and difficulty in relationships. But we also know there are probably unconscious patterns. And we also know there are probably unconscious epigenetic patterns, this passed down stuff. And then we don't know what else there is, but there are patterns that come through us, maybe energetic patterns, maybe something that we can't identify just yet scientifically. So we want to find what is it that is not necessarily our own that is blocking us from having relationships. So we put in members of the group to be the the person themselves who's coming to have work done, and then their parents, their grandparents, their great-grandparents, whatever it is that's needed to look at the pattern, to see can we track this pattern back. Mm-hmm. And what I saw when I went that first time completely blew me away because I saw a situation where somebody who knew nothing about the person who had an issue, didn't know what their issue was, didn't know anything, completely accurately resonated a situation that had happened in that person's life, showed them interactions. And I won't use that one too specifically. One of the things we want to do is be really careful about anything being identifiable. But the amazing thing that has happened now is that that some very brave and beautiful couple, Dash and Sarah, decided that they were willing to do this unusual process on film. And it exists in Netflix on Sex, Love, and Goop. And you can go to, uh, I think it's episode five, and you can actually see this unbelievable, strange, beautiful capacity we have to accurately resonate each other's families happening on film. I saw it and it was amazing. And when you, Kata, when you talk about what gets resonated, where does this input or this movement come from with the people that you call resonators, that stand in? to be different family members of the person whose uh, problem, whose pattern you're looking at. So (laughs) I'm going to uh, say something that I might change my mind in a couple Uh of years because it's just, it's all theory. 
We have no idea. So people call it many different things, but the word I use is I just call it the field. The founder of this work or the person who took many other strands and consolidated them into something he called family constellations was also German, Bert Hellinger, who died only recently, who brilliantly took and wove together strands of his Jesuit training, his psychoanalytic training, and his training as a priest living with the Zulu in Africa, where all healing work in in non-Western cultures tends not to be as separated, where we think we can heal just ourselves and not have it be part of family movements. He took everything and he put it together and he made this work called Family Constellations. And he calls it the knowing field. But whatever it is, I think it's this thing that connected our our ancestors as we evolved. So I think we have nervous systems that can do this. I think every single human who exists, if they don't block themselves, can feel each other in a whole bunch of ways that we don't even know is possible. And all it takes is a willingness to do it and you experience it. By the way, it is not limited to being physically in person. One of the things that has happened during COVID is that all of us who practice many different forms of constellations, family constellations, ID sessions, what I call integration constellations, all these different things that that rely on this um, phenomenon of resonance where one person can perceive things that they can't possibly know from another person's family system or just from another person's internal reality. All of those things rely on resonance, which I think is similar to what happened for our ancestors when we were all interconnected that way and didn't find it weird or magical that we could know stuff about each other. It probably felt normal. And we have today, science is looking into proving all what you're talking about, what for many years has been put off as quote woo woo or spiritual, but that they know that particles that are in different places of the world are connected, can influence each other. So if you go into quantum physics uh, or such, there there are entanglements, there are connections, there's a resonance that even science can't fully explain how it works yet, but we know it's there. We know it exists. Exactly. And I have a cousin who's a, a, a particle physicist and who, who's one of the people who worked at CERN and stuff. And he always looks at me and goes, oh, Kato, that's micro. The, we work in, we just work with particles. We don't know what happens in the macro. But mm -hmm. to me, the fact that quantum physics so far and physics in general kind of says time doesn't exist the way we perceive it. Yeah. <laughs> Locality doesn't exist the way we perceive it. In, in, interdependence is the whole deal. Something can be a particle and a wave at the same time. We So we don't know very much, but what we do know is that we are starting to see that things are not how we perceive them. They're much bigger than what we are capable of perceiving through our beautiful flesh that, that has confirmation biases, that has fear, that has contractions, that has ways that we live in ourselves. But the more we allow ourselves to open up, the more we have, I think, what were natural skills for our ancestors. Yes. Yeah. Now, on top of, so number one, there's this natural skill that I believe, that I know we have, that I think is going to be very easily explainable in the next little bit of time, as we show that we can co-regulate co each other, we can somehow perceive things about how the other person is, we can feel them over the internet, we can 
do this over the internet. If I were resonating your mother, I would feel accurately stuff about your mother without ever having seen you or knowing anything about you or knowing anything about your mother, simply by you choosing to bring your family into whatever this thing is that is the field and me choosing to be available to you to work some stuff out. Mm -hmm. So that's actually not the weirdest and most amazing part of this. The most amazing part is that something happens for almost all of us, if not all of us who facilitate this work, which is that people also can know things that the client themselves doesn't know. So it's one thing for me to just resonate with you and to accurately show you the mother that you know, or the father that you know, but a lot of times the pattern started way back, way before your actual parents. And a lot of times, so let's say even, let's take the example of you and me. Our fathers lived as boys through the war. So they have a very specific experience that that is very frightening, especially when you live through firebombing of your whole town. But I'm sure there are some people who live through the firebombing and have so much sense of safety in themselves already, that they don't get as disturbed by ones who already have a lack of sense of safety coming from their ancestors, because our German ancestors went through plenty of wars going back and back. Often when we look at the pattern, one of the most interesting things, at least that I see frequently, is that the pattern will have originated before even sometimes the ancestor knew anything about. And the pattern usually are patterns. And this is a strong tenet for me. I don't, many family constellations facilitators have very many, like Bert Hellinger had very many kind of rules and strategies. I work from a Rosen method basis. So I work without a whole lot of stories. I watch what's happening and unfolding in the moment. And I don't do the same thing constellation to constellation ever. There are very, very few things I might do in a repetitive way, but mostly I don't. And the structure of the family from way back is usually, or the pattern that comes, let me re-say that for a second. So the patterns that, that come to us through our ancestors usually were survival strategies. They were necessary for the survival of the family at some point. And so even things that might look really ugly now as they show up in the family, often had a reason far back. And so I will give an example that I sometimes use because it's a shocking example, but it's good because it's a shocking example, which is that if you have a family that has repeated incest of fathers and daughters, it's highly possible and likely that at some point there was an ancestor who actually, whose wife died, had eight children, and his eldest daughters had to be his wives or the whole family would die. And whether that was sexual or just an invasion of their separateness or making them be emotionally his wives, it would be something that altered the family so that they could survive, but wasn't a good pattern for those daughters who had no no ability to say no, but they adapted because the survival of the family was necessary. And then those patterns get passed down and down. And by the time it gets to you, you have no idea why there's so much incest in your family. It just seems like a terrible thing. And it is a terrible thing for anyone who's been incested but it it may have had a purpose in the very beginning. And what happens in constellations a lot of times is we actually see that. 
So we'll put in the great grandfather or the great grandfather who lived on a farm in the middle of nowhere, whose wife died, whose daughters had to perform this whatever version of inappropriate wifedom for him. And just seeing that will change the whole picture within the sort of cascade coming down to the current moment. And you feel it in the room when it happens, when you really look at it and there's this moment of acceptance, ah, this happened. And sometimes the client will know that's what happened. And sometimes they won't know. And then they'll go back and they'll say to their great grandmother or their grandmother, I did this woo woo strange thing. This was so weird. And this thing showed up of the mother having the great grandmother having died. And the, and the, and the grand, and the person, the elder will say, oh yeah, that's what happened to that person. So how does a resonator who knows nothing about this family know that person died? Because what will happen is the person resonating that great-great-grandmother will just lie down and be dead. (laughs) And then there'll be 10 children sitting there looking up at the father. (laughs) And then he'll pick the daughters and pull them up and say, you two have to help me do this and that, or he'll be, or he'll act inappropriate. The resonator will act inappropriate with the daughters and you will see physically, this is what happened for this family. And sometimes you won't know it The client won't know it until afterwards. And this actually happened in in that Netflix shoot was that there was a grandfather who was constantly going away from the family, wanted nothing to do with it, stayed far away. And the client, which was Dash, they didn't know that this was the truth about this grandfather until they went home and talked to their mother and said, what was the story with that grandfather? This is what he was doing. And the mother said, oh, yes, that's how it was. He was always traveling, staying away from the family. He was avoidant of all the family stuff. These are amazing examples. And with regards to family constellation, does it always work? Or have you had instances where nobody could make any sense of anything that was coming through? Okay. It, I, As far as I can tell, it has always worked. I have twice had people who didn't like what they saw in it. Yeah. But, it but later, at least in one of those cases, I actually found out that the person's life changed, even though they didn't like what they saw in it. So I felt much better because he was very mad about it. He really didn't like what he saw. But what he saw was beautiful. He just didn't like it. It didn't fit in his stories, in his confirmation bias, which he needed his mother to be awful and she wasn't being awful, but it shifted something in him. So this is another part of the thing that I don't understand. I don't pretend to understand, but we're not just working with that things change in terms of what you consciously see. Something happens when things are not avoided when they're seen, even if we don't know what it is we're seeing, something changes. And I think this is where quantum physics is involved. My And again, just my theory could be completely wrong. But my perception is that there is something that connects all of us. My guess, when you resonate a great grandfather who somebody knows nothing about, and you resonate them accurately, my guess is that that everything is all existing at once. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I believe in afterlives or before lives. My guess is that time doesn't exist the way we perceive it, and nor are we separate the way we perceive it. But that we, even as humans, with our limitations, if we choose to, can transcend those things by just being open to perceiving and really being lost. You have to be lost because as soon as you have ideas, you're shaping something. 
Mm, beautiful. Yes. And I have a strong sense of that as well with regards to time and also our interconnection. So with family constellations, what you're saying is you're actually looking at these unconscious patterns that influence our lives and you're looking at where they're coming from. And you're telling us that at some point, these patterns that are non-functional now actually served a purpose. So once we see these now non-functional patterns uh, as brought forth through the constellations work, of course, we're also deconstructing some very deep patterns. So which kind of blows apart the paradigm that we think constituted our lives until then. I interject so I don't forget. Sometimes it gets very bumpy for people right after constellations because you're trying to live from a different place all of a sudden without, it takes a while for our poor little bodies to catch up. Yes. So how do you support clients after, especially when it's something that really rips the rug out of under their feet? So it, it actually starts during, which is, so again, some of this, so let me just say one thing. A lot of times with constellations or every, all constellations I've ever seen have a brilliance to them because we're always tapping into this interconnection. But many facilitators don't do stuff, what how I do it, what we call blind. It's difficult and time consuming, and you have to be willing to be really lost to do things with nobody knowing anything about anything. It it takes a long time. It's hard to do. A lot of times you can do very powerful constellations in 15 minutes where everybody knows what the issue is. You're talking through things. You move things. I don't do it that way because I love the depth of the non-knowing and not shaping anything and making sure everything that happens is not coming from somebody's ideas or stories. Already when you're doing that, when you take that time, what you're doing is you're not traumatizing the thinking brain by going too fast for it. You're allowing the same as in Rosen. You're always, you never go in Rosen ahead of a client. They lead. So the way I do constellations, the client is leading, not by them doing it, but by the resonators are picking up from them. So they're moving at their pace and things are unfolding. And the whole time I'm monitoring the body of the client, even if I'm online, I can monitor body. I can feel, I have a lot of years of feeling people. So I feel towards what's happening. And what happens is it's not just a conscious revealing that happens when you start to see where the patterns come from. It actually shifts something. And everybody in the room or everybody who's on the internet with you you can feel this moment that happens where something starts opening and you feel this openness starting to come in and this spaciousness, which is that sense of safety, which is what comes from a non-judgmental accepting of what is. It just is. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the deep ancestral part has to stays quite painful, but almost always, even if that's what happens, this ripple of openness comes down towards the client and you feel it comes through the generations and then it comes into the client themselves usually, but very strongly into their resonator because in family constellations, we don't 
put the client in themselves until the end. I often put them in the end so as to settle it into their own body. So they'll stand next to the person who is resonating for them and they'll feel what they're feeling. And sometimes you get to say to a dead mother, I love you, a dead child, I love you, I'm sorry, I miss you still. You get to have these moments with the people who are being a section, I think, whomever they're resonating. It's not, we're not possessed. Nobody's coming through you. But I think we're feeling this outside of time and spaceness. So there is a, there's a movement that happens already in the client. And I'm always watching and monitoring to make sure that they're okay. I generally work, I love working in person because I like to be able to put my hands on because it helps me to stabilize people. I'm very careful about asking people how they feel about touch because not all people are stabilized by touch. But when I can, I will. But what happens is you are already in the process having something open up in you that is very supportive. And then I do follow through with people and I ask them to get stay in touch a little bit with me and let me know how they're doing. And I work very much with just coming to a comfort level with how bumpy it is, because no matter how bumpy it is, that bumpiness is things deconstructing inside of you. So I've yet to see, I have been really lucky. I'm sure there are cases where you're coming where you're coming close to an edge with somebody who's somewhat dysregulated i tend to be able to feel that i do not work with people until they've resonated a whole bunch with me i will not do their own constellation because every time you resonate for somebody you change you grow you get to feel the changes that happened in in that family system so you become more flexible more resilient more capable of handling feelings so by the time i do a constellation with somebody i pretty much know they can handle Mm-hmm. What's going to come through? And the bumpiness is just part of the re- rewiring, the catching up with the deep shifts that are happening. But sometimes people are just entirely joyful after, but it can go in any direction. And it, it makes sense uh, to have people learn to be with the emotions. You said in an interview, we each need to face our own grief in order to be whole. And no one can do this for us. Of course, we live in a time where we more often than not suppress our sadness, our grief, and we numb it. Uh, So for me, a big part of my own healing has been to actually allow to sit with the sadness, to grieve, and to soften towards it and open up. Even though all my lifetime, I've pretty much been taught not to do that. So just these last years, it's been incredibly healing to allow for that. It is what is so lovely is to hear that. It is so lovely to hear that because I feel like so many people are starting to learn that. And I can recognize, recommend nothing more highly than Rosen method for that. So go try some Rosen because it is rapidly re-regulating of a nervous system, giving it the ability to handle grief when you are held while you are feeling your grief. There's just nothing like it, right? So most of us in our childhood did not have parents who felt safe enough to fully hold our grief. Mm -hmm. It's scary and dangerous to the family system. So when you are held feeling it, it changes your capacity to feel it and it goes deeper and deeper. Constellations does it too in a funny, almost like homeopathic way for starters, Mm -hmm. because you get to watch someone else feel your grief. You get to watch someone else howl out your grief. So if you're somebody who's tightly contained and and doesn't feel okay doing that, it's wild to watch it come. 
through someone else. And often in the end, in constellations, I will put somebody in and they can, and they can feel that themselves. There's another form of constellations, which I just adore. And actually the ID Institute in, in, in Los Angeles, which Stephen Gillenhall, who we're beginning to partner on talking about ways to work together with our different modalities, does these sessions that you can do online very easily. And I would suggest to people to go check it out where the form it's cre- was created again by a German who's, who did this brilliant work of creating a way in which instead of resonating family members, you are resonating words of what he originally called an intention sentence, and I call a sentence of desire. Mm -hmm. So if a person brings a sentence of desire, like I want joy, and you are picked to resonate the I, we pick somebody to resonate the I, somebody the want, and somebody the joy. In the way I do it, you don't know what word the words are, you don't know what the sentence is, you don't know what you're resonating, you can be total strangers, you can be online, and then you just watch how the people resonating each word interact with each other and what starts to happen or what they report about what they're feeling is you start to see your own psyche at work with itself. So Mm -hmm. your joy maybe just lies on the ground and weeps. (laughs) (laughs) Something's wrong here. And your want really likes your eye, but wants nothing to do with your joy. And pretty soon you, you can ask your joy, what age are you? And it's, I'm three. She wants to still stuck her thumb. She's scared of the others. And you get to voyage with your parts into their grief as they feel. It's extraordinary work and really, again, profoundly makes more room inside of you to feel all the feelings that felt like they'd kill you. And then every time you feel a feeling that you feel like will kill you and it doesn't, it, it, you're the way I think of it is it's like we have a we're all painters, right? Because mm-hmm. we paint our lives from our past experience. So if you're paranoid about sticks lying on the ground, you're going to walk around with a lot of fear looking around on the ground for snakes that are going to bite you. And you have a limited palette because your palette is always looking for snakes. You know, you don't know, you don't know how to paint birds. But then if you get to resonate, For somebody who loves birds and has no interest in snakes, you're going to start looking for birds and suddenly you have birds in your palette. (laughs) So it's like we become painters who get so many colors that we can paint in when we practice this amazing gift of resonating for others then suddenly our, oh, I've never thought of it and said it this way, but it's actually true. My confirmation bias, every time I resonate for somebody else becomes bigger and bigger. And you can, I'm not no longer going from just my past experience. I now know what other things feel like that I didn't before. So I can now recognize the world much more realistically. And I'll give a great example, which everyone can see in the Netflix thing. The couple we were working with, Dash and Sarah, are very gender fluid, not interested in rigid things at all. And and Sarah picked uh, a man to resonate her mother and, and a woman to resonate her father. And they didn't know that they were doing this. The woman, when she put, when Sarah put her in, stood there and you can watch her stand and she starts to put her hands on her hips and she starts to move differently. And the, in the situation we were working with was that Sarah is madly in love with Dash and doesn't want to repeat her previous patterns of eventually cheating on and leaving partners. 
What the none of the resonators knew was that Sarah's father had cheated on her mother and that Sarah had been pushed and pulled between the two parents around this and around the effect it had on the mother. And it had a big impact on her. This resonator did not know she was being a father, did not know about the affairs, but she got in there and she started swaggering around. And actually, it wasn't edited in, but there's a point where she goes, I'm a pirate. No, I'm a man. And in, I think in the filming, she says something like, I'm not interested in all that silly family stuff over there, but these guys, and she turns around and looks at the other resonators. She goes, they're really interesting. And she's basically seducing them like a man already knowing nothing about Sarah's family of origin. I remember that scene vividly. Yes. So the woman who resonated that now goes out in her life knowing what it feels like to have that male swagger, to be a man who wants to, she knows something that she would never have in her normal life. So her palate just got hugely larger and her ability to recognize things just got hugely larger. So again, it's one of the things I would say to your listeners, if there, it's very easy right now to do this work online, go do it, resonate, see what it's like. It's, mind-bogglingly marvelous, <laughs> no matter what form it's done in. And that's a really great example you just gave there, Kato. And you mentioned the ID Institute. And can the listeners of this podcast also do this work when they go to your website? Yes. So people should definitely go to my website, which is rosenconstellations.com. And at the moment, because of COVID, unfortunately, and also a writing project I'm in the middle of, I'm not doing groups until it feels more stable, but I will. And people can sign up to work with me once I come back in. And at some point I'll start doing some online stuff, but because of the writing project, I'm not actively doing it right now. So they should go, people should go. There's resources, there's information, the link for the ID Institute, which is actively working. And then also to beloved compatriots of mine who I've been training, who are doing this work also, which they call eye to eye, both the ID Institute and the eye to eye and what I call integration constellations are all working with the psyche with this sort of sentence of desire, which works very well online because you don't need a lot of people. When I do my family constellations, they're huge. But so there's no reason to wait. You can have this tremendous experience. And I know there are a million good family constellators out there working online now in many different, there's actually a, a woman, Sarah Payton, who's looking at neuroscience and working online. And I put all those links on my website. So people should go and look at that. It's like a smorgasbord of fascinating things. And what we all have in common is we're all working with it, with whatever this thing is that everybody will call different things, but this field that connects us all, we're all working with non-judgment. We're all working with the perspective, this beautiful, loving, open perspective of humanness that, that the thing to do is accept what is and be willing to see clearly what is in your family of origin, what is inside of yourself. And this is also the basis for Rosen work, which there's a lot about on my website as well, which is that you can't live fully when you're resisting. Resistance contracts us. We can't live fully. So all of this, all of these works will help you peel away the layers that keep you from seeing what is and loving yourself, others, existence from a place of here rather than tight little, no, I got to make it something out, which never works. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> Wonderful, Kato. Thank you. And there's one more question. I'd love to pick your brain about practices in your life that have augmented your life mentally, physically, or spiritually. And is there something else that you'd love to share with us today? Sure, I will. So first off, obviously, for me, if you're anywhere where you can get to a Rosen practitioner, do it. It is so deeply life-changing and rewiring. And there is nothing like working with somebody else. There's a profound co-regulation. Like I think they took those, they, there's also the study with traumatized rats where they took them and they gave them a mother rat that could lick and love and they get all better. You know, <laughs> If that happens for rats, that can happen for humans. Go find a Rosen practitioner. And also find constellations online and then later on in person and have the tremendous things that, that those that the huge changes that can come through that. I have something new that I've been doing lately that I feel has actually made a huge difference for me in this time of COVID. And I would like to suggest to people because it's one of the simplest practices ever. <clears throat> but it comes from all these practices that I've learned over so many years. Right now, we're also dysregulated nervous system-wise. It's impossible not to be. So many things are changing in the world. We have no ground underneath us. So we need to find our ground in ourselves. And that really actually means our ground of safety in not needing anything to be different than what is. And the thing that will bring that most clearly into your life is to to do a practice of physical self-love every day. And so what I do is I won't get out of bed in the morning now, ever, without starting by, I start with my feet, you don't have to, but I like starting with the feet. I start by touching my feet with my hands, not doing anything, just welcoming my feet and saying, good morning, feet. And some people you can say, good morning, feet, I love you. Good morning, feet, thank you. Good morning, ankles. Good morning, calves. And you go every inch of your body with your hands, slow enough and just listening so that your hands, and you don't have to say it out loud. I love to say it out loud and I think it makes it stronger, but essentially not so fast that your body can't feel you because the thing is, and do this right now and all of your listeners just do this right now. Take your own hands and hold them and just hold them. Don't do anything at all, but hold them and feel how powerful that is. Like when I do that, I almost want to cry. Like I can feel, oh, there I am. I've just been talking for an hour very excitedly. I forget myself sometimes when I'm doing that. Oh, here I am in my hands. And when you touch your own hands, you start a whole cascade of neurochemicals that say, ah, here you are. Here's this okayness. Oh, right now these hands are okay. Even if they're arthritic a little, or they're, they're okay, they're here. So if you do this, if you come to your feet, you come to every piece of your body and you say good morning to it first, and you let your hands say, I love you, I love you, I love you. And as you do it, you'll probably feel that there's some places in your body that are really not present. And come all, make sure you come everywhere on your face, back of your head, your neck, top of your head. And then that can take a minute. And if that's all you've got is a minute, you've done that. Then when you get up, make sure you get up out of bed, not 
that you go, okay, now I did that and I'm bolting out of bed. <laughs> but you get up and you slowly put your feet on the ground so that your feet are saying, good morning, ground. I'm here, you're here. And just take that second to find your balance in your body before you move into the, it'll change so much. But if you have time, the thing that will change even more is if after you've said good morning to your whole body, you come back to where you're feeling an absence. And don't worry if in the beginning when you do this, you don't notice it, then you can just pick a place. Often your heart's a great place to start. Sooner or later, you'll get used to, you'll start to feel, oh, I don't really feel myself here as much. Maybe my 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 jaw, there's just no, no contact at all. So where you where you feel yourself, like right now I'll feel in my chest, you put your hand there and you don't do anything but listen with your hands. So maybe put both your hands and then you just listen and you get curious, what's here? What needs to come up? What am I feeling here? And you might just feel physical sensations, but also you might feel all kinds of emotions that come up when we, as soon as we start to pay attention, you might feel grief, you might feel tremendous excitement, you might feel rage, and just stay with what you feel. You don't try to change it. You don't try to do anything. You meet yourself where you are. Mm -hmm. And what you will find is if you give that time, it will keep changing. And pretty soon you won't see just the one thing under the rage. You'll see the grief inside the joy. You'll see the sadness inside the sadness. You'll see the joy and the tremendous love. You'll see multiple colors. You'll feel textures that, that you can't feel when you're going fast. So I invite people to do this practice because it's astonishing how delicious it can be. I have people I've gotten started doing it who will stay in bed like I, I sometimes will an hour just to say, here I am. Ah, here I am. <laughs> and then when you go into the world from there, you're going in with, with all of you welcome as opposed to, oh, put it all away, go forward mm, from that, that place of absence. That is beautiful, Kato. Thank you. And profound. I love it. I will do that tomorrow morning when I wake up. Yeah. And do it. Make a commitment if you can, because it's really the places that are most hurt in us don't trust us much, mm -hmm. right? because we've spent our life ignoring them. So make a deal. Tell yourself just for a month, I'm going to do this every single morning. I won't get out of bed. Even if it's one minute, I won't get out of bed without doing it. It will develop a sense of trust in you and in your body that you are actually going to listen, because most of us go way too fast for ourselves. Yes, that is so true. So mm -hmm. we need to make commitments to ourselves. to the... It's it's one of the reasons that that the being lost is important because when we try to resolve things too fast, the hidden parts of us are going to go, well, I'm disappearing even further because she's not listening. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's why in Rosen, we have to take the time that it takes the client. You don't teach clients because it has to come from inside. So do that with yourself. Delightfully welcome yourself every morning. Well, that is such a beautiful practice you've shared here, Kato. And I can't thank you enough for the gift of your time and your wisdom and <laughs> being here with us. This was really absolute delight to connect with you and 
for you to share yourself with us. Thank you so much, Kato. You're very welcome. And for me, it's really, I am so appreciative of every human who is willing to do the sort of voyaging you're doing and do it publicly and who has such curiosity. I just love your curiosity. So I think that these are, this is how we weave community is this kind of question asking, this kind of voyaging. So I thank, I thank you. That moves me, chokes me up, actually. <laughs> thank you, Kato. Thank you for everything you do. And uh, have a beautiful and blessed day. You do too. Okay, <laughs> bye-bye. Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. <laughs> <laughs>